Okay, well, welcome to Invisible Faith. I'm glad to have you join me and my first official podcast episode. And I'm especially delighted and really amazed that Graham Kerr has agreed to be my first guest. For those of you who don't know, Graham had a wildly successful show that ran from in the U.S. from 1968 to the early 70s called The Galloping Gourmet. And this show made Graham a big celebrity and a household name. And I certainly remember from when I was much, much younger, uh, the show. Uh, he and his wife were nominated for two Emmys uh, for this show. Uh, Trina, his wife, was the executive producer. So while you might have heard of The Galloping Gourmet, you may or may not have heard about his a uh, very long and public U-turn from his days at the Galloping Gourmet. And as he'll tell us, it's taken over half his life and it's still new every morning. And he's here to bring us up to date as we join him on his journey. So welcome, Graham. So fantastic to have you. I could not be more excited. And thank you for the privilege of standing on the doorstep of your career um, in speaking in this way, it's so special. Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for taking a chance on an unknown podcaster. Uh, I really, like I said, very amazed that you've agreed. And I have to just tell everyone how gracious you've been through all of uh, the technical challenges that I've posed and all the time that you've spent. So just thank you so much. You're, you've really been a gem and I'm so grateful. So let me again wish you a happy birthday, which I believe you celebrated yesterday. Um, Anything special that you would like to share that you did? Or, <laughs> well, or I mean, to, to let you know what kind of a, I, that I still have a sense of humor, I had to pick up two cakes because I was sharing this day with a wonderful woman who is 98 years of age and so sharp and agile and wonderful. And I had to go down to the store and pick up two small birthday cakes for a virtual birthday party, which was held last night. On the way back, and I had to jam my brakes now. I had the cakes on the passenger seat mm -hmm. next door to me, and one of them literally leapt into the air, folded over, and fell upside down. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And all I could think of praying was, because I couldn't stop because there was other traffic, is, Lord, please make it fall upside down with the cake which is mine and not Betty Ann's. And when I finally got home, I found out that it was mine. So mine was nicely crushed. You know, I'm ah. a decrease. So <laughs> and hers was in pristine condition. So that, 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 that's the only thing I have to share. But I thought, oh, gosh, that, it really is a God. Wonderful. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot in there, isn't there? I think it, it's, it gets at maybe your journey from the Galloping Gourmet to now, right? In terms of turning from um, you want and what's ideal for you versus what's best for other people. So, you know, before we talk about the U-turn and your conversion, I was I wanted to maybe start a little bit more at the beginning to understand how the Galloping Gourmet came into existence. So, you know, I, I know that you were born in London. Your parents were, were Scots. They were involved in hotel management. And if the Internet is correct, which we know it might not be, you became a hotel manager at the very young age of 15. And even more amazing, you met your wife, Trina, when you were both around the ages 
of 10 or 12. So can you tell me a little bit more about how sort of these elements in your life led to you becoming the Galloping Gourmet? How did that, how did that happen? Do you know if I was to look at all my time, because I first went into the kitchens in my dad's hotel, because I looked at my dad and I thought, I would like to be a hotel, a hotelier, which is what they called it in Europe, um, like my dad. You know, like if I was a fireman's son, I want to be a fireman. Um, so he said, well, then we start in the kitchen. So I began in the kitchen, I think, at the, about the age of 10 and a half or 11. Um, and so I stood on, a, on a, a, a wooden box and I was given a small knife and the chef showed me how to use it. So I did prep work in the kitchen and I learned as I went. When I was 15, they got me to go into the dining room and I was quite proficient. I was quite tall for my age. So they dressed me up nicely and I cooked table side for people. And when I cooked table side, and I remember one couple particularly, my first couple, I did a crepe Suzette, uh, sort of pancakes in an orange Grammarnier sauce. And um, I remember telling them the story about how it came about in the, uh, the Prince of Wales in those days with an enchanting uh, young uh, Parisian who had supper with him in, 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 uh, in this famous hotel. And, uh, the, and the, the, the dish caught fire uh, accidentally and was delicious. And so it was called Crepe Suzette after the young lady. Um, so I told that story and served the dish to them. They ate it and Ted said to me, it's delicious. And I was given a good tip <laughs> for doing that. So all in all, that became my eventual life as the Galloping Gourmet. Notice what I did. I told a story. I cooked the dish. I served it to someone. They ate it. And that was it. So I always had people coming on the program. At the end of the show, I'd go and get somebody from the audience and sit them down to eat it. And so I was always fascinated from the day that I started work researching every single dish about how it would taste to somebody other than me. That was the program. So that is so interesting how your first experience had a performance element and how that very much did mirror what you did on the Galloping Gourmet. So that's so, so, so interesting. Can you take us a little step further in terms of how that led to a television show? Yes. Well, you know, I arrived in New Zealand from England in 1958. But, so how, why, did you, why did you go to New Zealand? Sorry, I didn't mean... Oh, okay. No, that's fine. I, I just <laughs> I don't want to take up acres of your time. Um, I was the general manager with my wife, Trina, of the Royal Ascot Hotel, right next door to the Royal Racecourse. You know, my, in My Fair Lady, you know, Ascot was the big thing. Um, this was a four-star hotel um, with 
lots and lots of business and the royal family used to visit. Um, and uh, I was the general manager at 22 years old. And how I got there was because my parents were managing. They were invited to take on the general management of Gravetime Manor, which is one of the top small hotels in the entire world and still is. And the result was that, that the owner of the hotel, seeing me as assistant manager to my parents, said, I'm going to give you a chance at being one of the great hoteliers of this nation. And I'm going to give you this job way ahead of your time and see whether you can do it. And so the, the truth of the matter is that we used to work 16 days in a row and um, lived on the property and it nearly destroyed us. My wife, Trina, lost our second child through fluctuating blood pressure. It was just, it was insane. It was uh, ridiculous. So in the end, decided this is not for us. Let's go away. Let's be a family. Let's find a place as far away from England as we can get. And that was New Zealand. And they wanted a chief catering advisor to the Air Force. I'd spent five years in the British Army. And so I knew about, you know, service life. And they, they employed me and flew me out to New Zealand. So I arrived in, in 1958. So can I just, I just, I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but I just have to say it's so interesting to me, which I did not know and haven't read anywhere, that that by, by refusing to sort of participate in this incredibly intense sort of lifestyle that was harmful, you know, to, to your wife and, and to yourself, that somehow, and you're going to tell us, this turned into you know, an enormous success. I just find that very interesting, but please, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, do, do you know, I was saying that to my son-in-law the only yesterday, uh, via his wife and not directly, um, that sometimes he's waiting for a magnificent job that can turn into doing just wonderful things for him. My daughter says, I fear that if he doesn't get it, he will be really despondent. And I said to, to her, darling, the truth of the matter is in my life, just, as, just from personal experience, every time that it appeared that a really advantageous door was opening and it shut, I, that almost immediately there became another door that opened which was better hugely better so it may be despondency for a few days but keep your eyes and ears open for the next thing that's coming yeah no that's absolutely been true in my own life so it just i just again i find it uh i just find it fascinating when i hear other people have had those that same experience so i'm sorry you were saying 1958 you arrive in yeah 58 arrive in new zealand and i had to go six months ahead of trina but they they asked that I do that so that I could become acclimatized to the job and get, get a little nest ready for my family. Um, that was difficult. However, during that time, I was discovered at a dinner party 
by the head of women's broadcasting for New Zealand, who said, I would love you to do a series of programs on Women's Hour in the afternoon, radio, about food and about your experiences in Europe and everything else. And, and I thought, I can't do that. Uh, I wrote nine different scripts and submitted them over nine separate months before they accepted it. And I went in and I recorded it. And I think that's the last time I ever wanted to do anything like that. Um, but it, it, it took. And as a result of my familiarity now with the media, when television arrived in 1960, I was tabbed as someone, because I did radio, obviously you can do television. Not, I don't know how they did that, but that's what they felt. So I was thrown onto television when there was only 50 television sets in the whole wow. nation. Amazing. Um, and it was written up as the best live show to date, which was not surprising. They eventually gave me, when it went national, uh, a, a time slot at eight o'clock on a Tuesday night between Peyton Place and the Avengers. <laughs> Which were very so, popular so, programs, <laughs> I believe, back. <laughs> well, there was no daytime television and it went off at 10 o'clock. Um, so you can see it wasn't that great. But um, so I had a very, very easy beginning in a very uncritical environment in which I was hugely that, uh, you know, viewed by just a few people, <laughs> only one channel, you know. Then how did it get to the U.S.? I, I just, uh, how did, how did that happen? It, it went, it went to New, it, from New Zealand to Australia, okay. which is a fairly short hit. Um, in Australia, it went commercial because there was no commercial TV in New Zealand at that time. And, um, I really, really, really did not want to do commercials, but I had to. Um, you know, it, it was just, if you want to be on television here, you've got to do commercials. Oh, okay. So I did commercials for, for powdered soup mixes and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so they said to me, all you really need to do is to hold up the package and say its name, and that's all we want from you. Uh, so I, I used to ad lib all of my commercials and actually for the rest of my career for everything that I had to do by way of commercials for sponsors, I always ad libbed them. And Trina and I would do about 10 different takes until we found one that we liked. Usually the sponsor wanted one of the other ones, but we insisted on, on ours. So it's very arrogant and never repeated as far as I can tell. But with, that's the way we felt that we, we felt violated by the idea of commercialism. And just because it started on TV without commercials, so that's what we were used to. And um, so there we are. So uh, it, 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 it got very successful in Australia. And then a tremendous dip took place with on a relational problem that I had with my management at that time, who wanted so much more money from me doing so much more commercial activity. Mm. And I just didn't want to do that. So 
I bought myself out of the contract and had to pay $10,000 a month to this guy to be able to do that. So I had to earn $10,000 a month somehow, and it didn't work. And we had all the kitchen appliances which had been given to me for my home uh, so that I could, you know, test and develop dishes on the same equipment, etc. So they came to my home and repossessed all the equipment. So I just had holes in the kitchen counter and I was cooking on a little camp stove, prime primer stove for my family. And they were going to repossess our house and it was a very dark time. Right at that moment, a, a man arrives from the United States. I've watched what you do. I think it would go worldwide and I want to sign you up to do 650 shows. Wow, amazing. <laughs> amazing. At the moment of despair. Oh, complete, complete. It was over. That's what I mean, again, yeah. the, the door shutting in your face. Absolutely right. The moment of your greatest success is often the moment of decline and the yeah. moment of of despair is the beginning of, of great things. That's interesting. So interesting. You know, I was reading and doing more research on you. Um, there was a quote in the Washington Post. Uh, you gave an interview, and I believe this is what you said. You said, I know what it is to have been big, and I know what it is to be me, and I really prefer to be me. So with that backdrop, can, can you tell us a little bit more about the Galloping Gourmet days and, and, and where that quote sort of comes from based on your experience? Yeah. Uh, you know, first of all, when the guy said to me 650 shows, I was used to doing 39 max uh, a year. And I said, <laughs> that's impossible. Um, and he said, well, how many have you got that you've done already that you could redo, that, that you know the details of? And I said, well, I've got, got about 60, maybe 60, 65. He said, well, that's perfect. That's just what we need for series one out of 10 series. Um, <laughs> and um, he said, it just may not work. And if it doesn't work, well, then at least you'll get paid for the 65 that you did once. You could get paid again. How much did you get paid for some of those? I said, well, I started at $25 an episode. And he said, I can assure you we can beat that. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it transpired that we went to Canada, to Ottawa, from Sydney, Australia. Uh, we had to commute. That's a, quite a commute. Um, so we went up and we did the 65 shows uh, that I'd done before, um, but we redid them. Trina said, you know, I've always said you're the most boring man in the world, but really you've got to understand that television is an entertainment media first, and then it's information now, newscasters may feel it's the other way around, but the truth of the matter is that 99% of people who watch television is to be entertained somehow. So with you, you might want to teach people how to cook very sincerely. And she said, I know you do, but you are going to have to give me the first six minutes of that program. 
and, uh, and please trust me, I will make you entertaining. Then you can do your thing and cook. So the first, I had to run in. May I just ask a question real yes. quickly? So, so Trina was quite right. She had very good instincts. Um, did she have any formal training? I mean, were, or is she just an intuitive person who sort of grasped the medium of, of television? At, what would you say? At 15 years of age, <clears throat> she was... She joined the Denville players in Jersey in the Channel Islands, which actually happens to be a birthplace for many famous actors and actresses on the British stage. So um, she was in the company of very talented people in a very talented theatrical atmosphere. Uh, so I think you could say that she was she understood what communicating to entertain met interesting yeah but never she'd never ever produced anything um so she she just said to me um i think you should run in grab a glass of wine off a pedestal jump over a chair um, and i think you should have a live audience um, as many people as possible um which we wound up with about 380 people in the studio and um, and then and uh, jumping up the chair, then then tell people a, a story, an actual joke, which you can somehow relate <laughs> to to the dish that you're going to prepare. And then let's go around the world. Uh, that's what I wanted to. Do. I wanted to go around the world. Uh, when I wanted to do a beef stroganoff, I wanted to go to Moscow in order to be able to see how they made it authentically in Moscow. And um, so uh, we did that. We went round and round and round the world as we, as we voyaged from Sydney to uh, Canada um, to do the show. We would take a long circuit and go right the way around the world, getting there and getting back home again. And in that, we would visit numerous countries and restaurants and film in those as we went. So that became the film thing. In other words, this is a dish. I've been there. I've done that. And, um, and here is this dish now for you. Um, so people had a vicarious sense of going somewhere. And they'd had a laugh, at, usually at my expense, because it would... It's terribly difficult finding so many jokes, I can assure you. Um, but by the time I got into the kitchen, I was warmed up and the, and the audience was warmed up and we were just having fun uh, during that and time. Yeah. I'm sorry. So, I mean, I think that's why your show to this day, I think, stands out for so many people that it was so much fun, you were so dynamic, it, it you had a sense, I think you had a sense of intimacy and a sense of joyfulness to it, which which had an impact to day. I remember feeling happy watching your show as a, as a, as a child. Um, so yes, but very effective. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, I just wanted to. <laughs> no, no, thank you. She worked so hard at that because she understood that if I was left alone just with a recipe, 
I was so determined that people would get it right. Every ounce of every teaspoon was so important to me. I worked 19 hours on the recipe for every episode. That's my personal effort went into it. And she knew that by the time that I finished, I was so intense about that, that I would be just flat out boring. And she had experience of that in New Zealand where that did happen. I was boring, um, uh, regardless of the placement between Peyton Place and the Avengers. Um, hard, hard to believe, hard to believe watching the Galloping Gourmet that you were ever boring. I have to say that. That's uh, crossed my mind a few times <laughs> as you've said that. But she, well, so she did a very good job of convincing you or coaching you or whatever she did. Yes. Well, my dear, you have to understand that at that stage, I was about... 26, 27 years of age in New Zealand. And standing on a set, talking to a nation about food, I didn't feel that I had enough experience to be able to justify my presence there. I felt like an imposter. So rather than suffer that, I made sure that I was no imposter and that I was expert at doing that thing that I was doing. I might not know much else, but I sure knew what I was talking about when I stood up to do it. So that's the reason I just felt like there were hugely successful chefs who were watching me saying, oh, the guy knows nothing. And I wanted to prove to them that I did. That's very, very interesting. So what would you say then was, I mean, going back to this quote about you know, the galloping gourmet versus you, like, what was it? What's the difference back then the, between the persona of the galloping gourmet and who Graham Kerr was that as, as a person? And did that end up the persona of the galloping gourmet influence your life in, in some other ways that you didn't anticipate? Do you know, during the galloping gourmet, I got a letter from Weight Watchers International, um, and I, I thought, I wonder why they're sending me a letter. So I opened it up and it contained in the envelope a broken wooden spoon, which certainly gets your attention. And they had given me the award, the broken wooden spoon award for the world's most public enemy number one for <laughs> anybody who wants to eat and be well. Mm. So, and I at that time laughed about this. These poor little dieter people who will never experience this great food. Oh, 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 oh. Literally, I dismissed it. Well, not entirely, because I had it mounted on a little green bench <laughs> thing and a frame around it. I was proud of it. Now, the fact of the matter is that if you eat at that kind of rich level, that I was eating at for very long, you get to be sick. And what happened to me was that as a result of all of that effort and all of those 16 years of effort on television, my wife Trina, whose parents died young from heart disease, who had super high cholesterol, which I didn't know about and neither did they, um, she has a stroke and a heart attack. So the very love of my life, um, I see incapacitated. 
and the light simply blazed on for me. Excuse me? That means that everything I've been doing has hurt the one that I love. And now, and now, regardless of whether I could make this great sauce or make the souffle rise or do any of these other and make 380 people laugh and enjoy and be happy, all of that was suddenly suspect. See? So where do you go with a thing like that? Where? Um, it just happened that immediately before that light went on, we had a major traffic accident and I was partially paralyzed down my left side. So I couldn't do that program. So the, it, that, that, that accident was what ended the Galloping Gourmet, is yes, that correct? Absolutely. Okay, you can't jump a chair when you're partially paralyzed. Right. I don't want to laugh about it because no, it, it wasn't any fun. But it, it absolutely stopped it in its tracks. Yes. Because so I'm sorry, it's just because you were you were and your wife were so um, injured and that your recovery was uncertain. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to understand a little bit more. No, um, no, please. Um, uh, you're right to inquire. And that's what <laughs> you do that very well. Uh, I had to try and walk again. And that's called rehab. So we had a doctor who was Scottish, and I hope I don't make this too broad an accent. He said, what you need to do is buy yourself a boat and pull, <laughs> pull some lines and catch your balance, and then I think you'll be fine. Um, and, of course, I just love that guy forever because I was a keen little dinghy sailor, 14-foot boats, and I loved sailing. So I thought, yes. I can see that. So we bought and built a 71-foot ocean racing cache and set out to sail around the world with our family who we had set aside completely in order to be able to do such a weight of production. And it was just, it was just a possibility for a whole adventure and healing at the same time. So that concludes part one of my two-part interview with Mr. Graham Kerr. Please check back on February 15th to hear the rest of his story about his adventures and his healing journey. It's a compelling story, well worth a listen. He's a great storyteller and a great person. So please come back. Thank you for joining. Blessings and peace. Take care. <laughs>